There's a pervasive feeling that they've cut so much and, and, and are cutting it again that there's nowhere left to grow. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Monday, November 6th, which means it's Media Monday. Today, John Kelly and I look at a new round of layoffs at Condé Nast and whether the once dominant publisher can figure out a way to make money. We also discuss Hulu and what Disney plans to do with it now that they're taking full control of the streamer. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to The Powers That Be. If it's Monday, it is, of course, Media Monday. I'm joined by John Kelly... Puck Kingpin to talk all things media. John, I want to start by mentioning that our last conversation on this show about Halloween candy sparked an unpredictable debate uh, among people I know, people in my life, that kept going for days all the way through Halloween, which is the polarizing nature of almond joys. People came out of the woodwork in my texts. Katie's parents wanted to talk to me about it on Halloween. You know, I thought candy corn was like the pineapple on pizza, like sort of basic debate about Halloween candy, but I didn't know Almond Joys were so divisive. I don't know if you heard any feedback around this. Got a couple emails. I, I'm, I'm not really open for feedback on this one. I feel like anybody, uh, <laughs> as I told you, who likes Almond Joys and Mounds is a fucking psycho, and they can take their point of view elsewhere. Um, as you know, and I've been thinking about this this week, I'm I'm thrilled Halloween is over. Yes, I, I love my children, and I love uh, being at my doorstep as, as other gremlins and ghouls show up, and I give them heaping fistfuls of candy. But boy, was I thrilled to pull all the tchotchkes off my front lawn, get all the, um, uh, the, the ghoulery out of the windows in the front side of the house, get all the, um, the faux graveyards out of the front yard, and can't wait for, for the, the Christmas lights of Palooza to, to come on next. The other thing that's polarizing uh, that's coming up, which I didn't realize, or maybe it's not even polarizing, but I've heard some contrary opinions, is daylight savings time. People are going mm. to have to set their clocks back this weekend. My friend Frank brought this up recently. He likes daylight savings in the fall because he gets to like save an hour of sleep. And I think that is psycho behavior because yeah. you're losing hours of daylight for half the year and you want to gain one hour of sleep. I mean, that is fucking crazy to me. Like I would much rather have daylight than like get like an extra hour of sleep psycho yeah who is this this crazy uh dark character that you're talking about here i mean <laughs> he works in the fitness industry so he gets up really early at like five uh, i guess he wants that extra hour of sleep but it's you know one night of the year i don't yeah i again we're not trying to make ourselves too unlikable ex here but but just to, <laughs> to finish the the beat wasn't daylight savings time conceived during the roosevelt administration as a way to help Farmers increase their yield in the Midwest. You know, these, this is this seems like a, a, an area ripe for disruption. Uh, I've I've lived in the Northeast my entire life, and and you lived in the Mid Atlantic most of yours. The idea of the sun setting at four thirty in the afternoon between November and February that could use an upgrade. Maybe we should all move to Florida. Well, I'm still waiting to figure out what happened to that Senate vote, which uh, you know 
I guess last year they decided to get rid of daylight savings. I think it's stalled in the house because of <laughs> big farm. The, the farm lobbyists are trying to stop it. Let's talk about media, John. Some news happened at your former stomping grounds of Condé Nast this week. They announced they're laying off 5% of their employees. Uh, they're closing offices. Uh, this is in a bid to, quote, improve efficiency, which uh, is a, another way of saying just cut costs. You know, for people listening to Media Monday who, uh, you know, somehow don't know this, Condé Nast, of course, includes The New Yorker, Vogue, GQ, Vanity Fair, Bon Appetit, Pitchfork also, by the way, for you music snobs out there. You know, what do you what do you make of this? I mean, this was your this is a this is an important part of your your life, John. Uh, the, and it feels <laughs> like Condé Nast is shrinking by the day. Well, I don't want to do the John Kelly Buildings Roman, but yes, I worked there twice, all in all about 10 years, and I I loved working there, which I think is a point of view that you hear frequently. I love working there, but, you know, because it, it's a place that has been historically, you know, fabulous yet flawed, and, and you sort of have to look no further than the oeuvre of IP, that is, sprawling oeuvre of IP about the joint. I, I was um, actually listening to a beta version of a podcast that Mark Healy, a former editor of GQ, is putting together, uh, which has all these great people. And he pointed out in it that, you know, there are a dozen of the people that they talked to for this show were working on memoirs about Condé Nast. My buddy Dana Brown has one. And I think Graydon's working on his memoir. You know, it's a place that comes up over and over again because it just, during its height, it just was so incredible and spectacularly profitable. I, I've heard all kinds of apocryphal estimates about how much money it made. $5 billion, $10 billion. Who knows? But the news that you cite is notable for a couple of reasons. So hmm. earlier last week, I guess on Wednesday, the, the Times published the news that Roger Lynch, the CEO, was laying off 270 people. That was 5% of the company. Actually uh, indicates companies larger than, than I realized, it's, you know, some 5,000 people. And the sort of chilling frustration is that Lynch, who's been there for about a handful of years at this point, has been operating his playbook via one play, which really is to, is to cut costs. And I don't mean that disparagingly. He, when he got there, he was a non media guy or a non or a non this kind of media guy. His background was at, at Pandora. I think he was the founding CEO of Sling. He was not emotionally connected to Condé Nast the way that all of the previous CEOs had been. I mean, when when Cy Newhouse was in charge, he was the owner, but he his office was in the building. I mean, people didn't quite realize then how phenomenally wealthy the Newhouses were. You know, the, the Condé Nast was owned by Advance, the 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 family office, but Cy operated the fiefdom from within the building. His office was on the executive floor. You know, when he was uh, at the height of his powers, people didn't even know who the CEO of Condé Nast was because it was Cy. He paid for everything. And and his personality was everywhere in the building from the Frank Gehry cafeteria, which didn't have garlic because either he was allergic or he didn't like it, to the way he would just walk around the building, walking into editor-in-chief's or publisher's offices. I and mean, I can remember this, you know, willy-nilly. Um, you know, that's why I mentioned that, laughingly that the Billings Ramon thing. I worked for Graydon when I was 21, and I knew Mr. Newhouse, you know, uh, fairly well, because I was shuttling important documents back and forth. And he was this incredibly hands-on, accessible, 
billionaire. You walk into his office and he had 23 binders around the totally Spartan white office. I think there were probably two sort of, you know, Rothko level pieces on the wall that I'm sure, you know, cost $100 million each. But otherwise, it was a Spartan office. He had the printout of each quote unquote book and he would sit there counting the ad pages and scribbling notes that he would take to the editors and he'd walk in and ask them. I can still remember the guy's phone number by heart whenever it would, it would come up. So he was, he was in it. And Steve Florio, who had been the publisher of Vogue and then the CEO, he was a Condé lifer. And Chuck Townsend, who replaced him, was a Condé liferish person, even though he sort of looked more like a traditional CEO. Bob Sauerber, who replaced him, was a guy who'd spent, you know, a decade plus at the place and, and risen through the ranks. And then when Bob was pushed out, defenestrated, Elegantly, the new houses loved the guy, but um, but after three years, I think it was clear that he wasn't going to be the turnaround artist. They brought in Roger, who, as I mentioned, had this background that was sort of asymmetrical to Condé Nast, and that was viewed. I presume it was viewed within the Newhouse family trust as a positive, that he was going to be a, a fabulous, unsentimental P&L operator, and that he was going to manage the company to profitability. He'd been losing about 100 to $120 million a year. And Roger's first task, and by the way, Roger Lynch is a, a fabulously smart guy. This is not a knock, but his first task was to merge what were two separate companies, Condé Nast, which is the U.S. entity, and then Condé Nast International, which was all the foreign territories, a couple dozen of them, Vogue, Romania, Glamour, South Korea, etc., and merged them all into one company, which sort of lopped off John the Newhouse, who'd been the Sai and, and Donald's cousin, and a, um, hmm. was was a half generation in between the hegemonic Newhouses and Steve Newhouse, who's the uh, the Newhouse who's in charge now. Anyway, so he took these two companies, which probably existed because of Newhouse family politics, merged them into one company, and then they've really continued to cut. I think is the feeling ever since. And Dylan and Lauren both wrote about this last week. There's a pervasive feeling that they've cut so much and and, and are cutting yet again that there's nowhere left to grow. Mm. And the business is being, uh, you know, what was once the most creative uh, business. I mean, it, it really is hard to explain how larger than life it felt to be a Condé Nast in the, um, in the early 2000s when I started my career, that if you continue to cut what's left, and, and I understand why Lynch has to do it. He has numbers he has to meet. He, he, I presume they did this because they had a, a terrible year of advertising. I'm sure Q1, Q2, and Q3 were the pits, and they have to cover a, a hole in the balance sheet here. But, if you keep cutting, it becomes increasingly hard to grow. And I'm sure they can point to certain things like Vogue World and the rise of the New Yorker subscription revenue business, which is a fantastic uh, success story. But when I think about what brands like Glamour made in, you know, around the, the Fin de Cecil, I think it was a $300 million a year business under Bill Wackerman. I would guess it makes $30 million now. Uh, there's a lot of frustration that it didn't have to be this way. That they could have they could have invested in the brands rather than strip them. I don't know if that's actually true, but but that's um, that's a feeling on the inside. I was going to ask for a, a detailed taxonomy of all the new houses, but we'll save that for our Patreon. Um, <laughs> you just mentioned this. How do you make money? I mean, do you have any ideas for them, Mr. CEO? Well, well, one of the things that they tried and didn't work was to treat the brands in a uniform manner. I mean, one of the things that was extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging about Condé Nast, and it really speaks to Sai's genius, um, just to zoom out for one second, the thing that made Sai so incredible was he, 
he was this extraordinary benefactor and art patron. And I think that he treated his editors like they were the artists, like they were the Andy Warhols. And he sort of knew that each business was different. Obviously, that's true. I mean, Allure is different from Vogue, which is different from Vanity Fair, which is different from GQ. But he also realized that that they shared a lot of collective bargaining power, particularly over the large European fashion houses who believed that there were really was no other meaningful marketing channel outside of the pages of Condé Nast magazines to advertise for, you know, Louis Vuitton, hand, you know, luggage or, you know, Carolina Herrera uh, gowns, etc. Et so as the company started to feel a shortfall as print advertising eroded, as these brands began to be more modernized with their spends. Then the company did really create a lot of uniform business decisions. They centralized ad selling, which I mm -hmm. was there when it happened. I could have told you it was a huge mistake. They did it after Time Inc. did it, even after Time Inc. knew it was a mistake. So they they created a disincentivized structure where the salespeople were no longer really supporting individual brands, but were just selling willy-nilly in support of categories, and that was unsuccessful. And then they also began under Roger to institute a, a meter across a lot of businesses. And actually, you know, this began under, under Bob too. And I think that, uh, or they announced under Bob and began under Roger, a policy of instituting meters across multiple brands that could not sustain them. So I think traffic went down, which meant that ad revenue went down. And the biggest challenge, of course, was the new houses made a perfect on paper but difficult to execute decision 10 years ago to build out a entertainment unit called CNE. It was led by Don Ostroff, who's a good friend of mine and who's an incredibly talented executive and had two goals for making money, sell IP and make digital video. And I think they learned over five years that IP is a long game and it's really hard. And the, the history of the right structures and who owned what at Condé Nast made it even harder. And digital video was even more challenging because they were just making video and kind of attaching it to brands. So there was a discontinuity between what the editors and the brand stewards wanted and what the people at CNE believed was going to work on the internet. There were, a, there were some successes like 73 Questions, the Vogue series, but by and large, what happened on the digital side of that business during these years, let's call it 2013 to 2023, was that they moved the food around on the plate so much that you didn't know where <laughs> your you know, mashed potatoes ended and the meatloaf started, you know? And Condé Nast magazines were the original brands in our culture. They, they really, really were. If you went to Uzbekistan in 1974 and said, have you ever heard of Vogue? <laughs> The guy would say, oh, yeah, 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 Vogue, I know Vogue, right? I mean, yes, Vogue, and yes. To, <laughs> right, and to know the difference, but, but in all seriousness, to know the difference, and I, I, and I don't want to be long in the tooth, but I, because I know I've said a version of this before on the show, but the fact that, like, and my wife, Rebecca, worked at Glamour and Self for years, the fact that there were young women in their teens who could tell you, you know, the difference between Glamour and Self, why they liked one or the other, or between Self and Allure, that's extraordinary. You know, when you look at the streaming landscape, you and I on this show talk all the time about how it's hard to figure out what's a Paramount Plus show versus mm. what's a Peacock show or a Max show. Mm. But to have that unbelievably tactile, precise view for what separates one brand from another, that's extraordinarily valuable. And it completely emphasizes why this was such an, an amazing business. And yet that was lost in the process and there were it was probably avoidable. I think that's why there's so much frustration inside One World Trade right now that it didn't have to be this way. But my counterfactual to that would be, that's probably true, but 
any road the company took was going to be filled with with discontent and, and incredibly difficult decisions, brand closures, executive shuffles. There's no royal road to go from being a high margin, glossy print publisher to the steward of a portfolio of digital brands, which is really what it is now. Well, our growth goals at Puck include being recognizable in Uzbekistan by <laughs> Q4 of 2029. Um, I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> streaming brands, John, because I do want to ask you after the break about Disney buying out Comcast stake in Hulu. back to the powers of be everybody it's media monday i'm joined by john kelly um i had forgotten by the way before we get into this hulu conversation john that that condi nast bought pitchfork back in like 2015 yep. and like as a yeah, it was there alt weekly indie head like snob who wrote you know cd record reviews for my college paper and blah 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 like uh pitchfork was a formative experience but i haven't been back to it for a long time really because like you know, they flag good new music sometimes, but the the writing can be so tedious. And I just wanted to read for our audience, in case you haven't read Pitchfork lately, uh, their review, a very good review of a new album from Hotline TNT. They're on Jack White's uh, record label, Third Man. But this is the open. This is the open. For people who get tired of us at Puck writing about defenestration, this is how Pitchfork writes. For most of its existence, Shoegazed promised a glimpse of an alternate plane of existence, either in the womb, the afterlife, or the unconscious. You know, dreamlike, heavenly, ethereal, whatever assured transcendence from this mortal coil. Mere words melt into suggestive, nonverbal cues. The typical hierarchy of rock band instrumentation dissolves, the guitars and bass and drums surging as one utopian sound wave. Anyway, Uh, wow. How about that? Mortal how coil. About That's that? the, the almond joy of um, of like purple uh, literary tropism. Yuck. Wait, but stay, let's stay on Pitchfork for one second because you're, you're triggering me. So I was working on the investment plan for The Hive when the acquisition of Pitchfork happened. So I would frequently make the three or four block trip from One World Trade, which is where Condé Nast was based, uh-huh. to I think it was 220 Fulton, which is where... C&E and, and the digital business and the people who were, you know, guarding the purse strings or headquarters. It was actually the building where they filmed Gordon Gecko's office in, in Wall Street, if, if, um, if that floats oh. your boat. And I remember a couple of details. One, that Fred Santarpia and the team at um, Condé Nast Digital at the time really wanted Pitchfork. They had missed on another acquisition, as far as I can recall, and they really wanted to push this one. Um, but I remember at the time thinking, they just want to buy something, right? You have these mm-hmm. guys who are these uh, the, the digital insurgents at this print print first and and then it was really print first organization and they just want to buy something that's cool within the price point and if you recall a lot of really stupid things were selling back then i think that time Mm -hmm. inc heralded or excuse me helmed by this guy joe rip bought a company called hello giggles that zoe de chanel had started i mean you can't make this stuff up i think people were trying to buy lenny letter you know i mean this was just it was a kooky time anyway so they bought it i can't remember the purchase price was not significant for a company like that. You know, it was um, any figure transaction. But I remember years later, after the high was was out and in the world and become a success, I was 
in an elevator with a colleague and Bob, the, the CEO of Condé Nast, and then the head of Pitchfork, whose name I can't remember, I'm sorry, the founder, got in the elevator, sort of a, a kind of Jack Blackish personality, uh, got in, didn't say anything for eight floors, got out, and door closed. And, and Bob, who was also a, a quiet guy, said, I don't know what we're going to do with that guy. <laughs> and I just thought, this is, this is a tough one. As you know, uh, and we discuss here frequently, a lot of companies uh, or businesses don't die of starvation, they die of indigestion. And uh, that's an example where you had something that was really, really, really cool in Pitchfork, it had an events business, etc. It, it came to a place like Condé Nast, which just had, was sorting through a miasma of challenges and um, mm -hmm. probably, uh, probably should have stayed independent, but, but what do I know? I'm well, just, they still I'm, have the, they still have the music festival uh, in Chicago every year. I think they also do one in Paris, uh, very hip, but obviously gotta be geared toward the Gen X slash millennial music snob crowd. I don't know a lot of Zoomers who are going to go to Pitchfork Fest and see like Big Thief and The Smile, but yeah, um, I don't even know what you're talking about. L literally, th these are like these are words you know, that heard together. Once we start a music vertical, uh, I will be very happy to host whatever content we need to around this that. Is the, um, this is the Alex high Bigler. noon vertical. <laughs> no, dude, I need. I need to give you a culture taxonomy. High Noon is very, we got, we got to do a very separate here. from Pitchfork Fest. They will not be uh, behind <laughs> no, the, I know that. I the know bar that. stand at Pitchfork Fest. Um, Alex Bigler knows what I'm talking about. Um, hey, real quick before you go, John, I want to get your thoughts on Disney uh, You know, announcing that it's purchasing at long last the Comcast NBC Universal stake from Hulu. What does this mean? for the business there. Also, like maybe what does it mean for the consumer who's just sitting on their butt watching Hulu? Well, this was, uh, to my mind at least, it was a not a much ado about nothing, but a, a fair ado about nothing. We've known for years, I mean, contractually, D Disney's got, I guess, the rofer on this one, right? They own two thirds of it. So they're probably gonna buy the last third. I know Bill's espoused some views on how they could do some cool swap for ESPN, but it seems like Iger, after coming back into his throne and initially, signaling that maybe they wouldn't buy Hulu seemed to very quickly pivot and signal that they were going to buy it. The floor price they announced is basically, I think, the contractual floor price. And the question here is pretty much the spread. Are they going to be able to buy it for 8.3-ish billion? Almost certainly not. Or is it going to cost them more like 10 billion to buy the final third, which would value Hulu at 30 billion? Here's what's fun for me, and I'm not an investment banker, but Hulu has about 48 million paying subscribers. It's a domestic business only, right? So it's a little bit different than Netflix, which is uh, obviously an international uh, thriving concern with a $200 billion market cap. The benchmarking is what's interesting to me. Netflix, with its 200-something million subscribers, is a $200 million business. And Paramount Global just announced earnings last week. And I think that it's up to the 60-something million paid subscribers. And the stock shot up on the news that, that the streaming business is going to be less money losing than it was in, in 2022. Now, Paramount Global is worth like in the low teens billions of dollars. So this debate about what Hulu is worth, which is what Bob Iger and Brian Roberts are engaged in, is no simple thing. You know, you have Paramount Plus, which is a fractional but important and key piece of the Paramount Global equation that's probably being seeing its its overall stock price depressed in a you know twelve or thirteen billion dollar bodysuit, and then you've got Netflix, which is you know four or five x Hulu that's worth about six point 
three times more than the the current sort of trading uh, estimated valuation. Where this settles is going to be incredibly fascinating. And it's also going to dictate a lot. Like if, if Disney's paying $10 billion off the balance sheet, it can afford to do that. But it means that it's now going to be facing a more WBD-like debt repayment calendar. So I, I assume that, look, I assume they buy it. I assume, as, as Bill noted in Dry Powder, that they, they'll pay between 10 and $11 billion, you know, P- Peter Hamby chump change, to buy out the asset. There's going to be, I can't even predict how the integration is going to work with Disney Plus. You know, they, they Disney knows that they need adult entertainment to grow their streaming business. It's not enough to have the Disney library and Star Wars. And by the way, like, I think we knew that all along. I don't know why the, the market overreacted to it in the early years of Disney Plus. Like, you go on Disney Plus, as I do all the time with my children, they've seen everything. You know, they've seen all the Toy Story and Cars movies a million times. They're, they're just not pumping out content the way Netflix is. But the larger point is, once this transaction settles and is closed... Disney is going to have to really start to move those other assets that Iger put the shingle on in Sun Valley. ABC, the other networks, I'm increasingly convinced that ESPN gets, you know, they'll own 51% with a strategic partner, uh, set that off to see with a ton of debt on it, and, and Disney integrates Hulu. And remember when when I was a kid, I took Latin, uh, as you can tell from all the, the defenestration in Puck, and there was this line in, in Cicero's <laughs> orations um, about how Rome must um, Rome must shrink to greatness. And I actually think that's like true of a lot of media companies too. And I think mm-hmm. that Disney, which has a lot of assets that don't that, that fit together in one sort of media era cosmos, don't all fit together now. And there's mm-hmm. a more sustainable cash flow positive less debt-addled Disney that requires offshoring these entities. and um, But I don't think it, they could pull it off without Hulu. I really, really don't. So this is, um, they'll, they'll, they'll end up paying out the nose for it. All right, John, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you for reminding me that Lenny Letter uh, was a thing that actually existed and was hot for a minute. I, I do appreciate that. Have a good week, buddy. All right, you too, man. I'll talk to you later. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.